Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hey, everybody. This is Scott Bland, and you're listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week on the show, we are going to take you from the halls of D.C. to the cornfields and the streets of Iowa. Let me begin by thanking the people of Iowa for playing an extraordinary role in transforming politics in America. To talk a little bit about the 2020 presidential race and how it is playing in the nation's all-important first caucus state. But first, we're going to roll it back right into D.C. We're going to talk a little bit about the big story of the past few weeks, impeachment, what's going on with that right now. And we're going to have uh, two of our top people who know what's going on in the White House and in Congress here to just unpack everything that's going on for us. A quick note before we jump into that, we are recording this a little bit before noon on Thursday this week. That is October 3rd. So if anything happens after that, we're going to have to cover it in next week's episode as usual. All right, for our first segment this week, we're going to give you an update on impeachment, what's going on with the whole process, what's going on in Donald Trump's head, what's going on with House Democrats. Here to talk about it, we have Politico White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me. And making his Nerdcast debut, Politico's Congress editor, Ben Weil. Hi, Ben. Hi, how you doing? Good, good, good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you made it here, Ben. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Very happy to be here. All right, so I want to start this conversation basically just by going inside the war rooms or, or the bunkers or whatever. You choose your metaphor, right? You've got Trump on one side. You've got Pelosi on the other side. At the center of this, th these are really the, the two personalities, the two people at the center of what we're going through right now in this impeachment fight. And Nancy, I, I was hoping you could kick us off. Just you, You've written some really good stories over the last week about uh, the, the planning and, and or the lack of planning that's going into the White House response to all this and and the extent to which it's really just Donald Trump out there doing his thing. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, Trump has been very, very frustrated, increasingly so and, and publicly so over the last few days about the impeachment proceedings. He's lashing out at the media, at Democrats, um, you know, sort of everyone at, at his staff privately. And I think that he really feels like, you know, he is the best uh, person to respond to this. He is like his own one-man war room. He knows how to solve this. And he's doing that through giving, you know, a lot of comments to reporters. He's doing that through his Twitter feed. It's pretty funny because he's like tweeting prolifically about the impeachment proceedings and the whistleblower and the intelligence chair, Adam Schiff. Meanwhile, his uh, staff keeps telling me, oh, no, he's really uh, focused on policy. Mm, so I'm yeah. always like, hmm, really? Is it, is it huh. infrastructure week? Are we yeah, in infrastructure, are we in week? Infra infrastructure week? And then the backdrop of what is happening at the White House is what typically happens at the White House. So Trump's like taking the lead and being his own best strategist and communicator on this. And meanwhile, there's factions at the White House that are fighting over what needs to happen. And uh, they're getting some pressure from Republicans on the Hill and outside the White House who are saying, look, you guys are caught flat-footed. You don't have a coherent message. Get it together. 
Meanwhile, in the White House, different people think different things. You know, the lawyers, for instance, think they want to control the war room and they don't really want to set it up until Nancy Pelosi officially moves ahead with articles of impeachment and they vote on them. There's another faction that thinks, you know, you need the war room up and running so they can talk about the politics and the PR of it. And so the White House is. And then there's Trump, like out there throwing. Then there's Trump, like, you know, punching everyone in in the world. And it was so interesting because today, just before he left, it's Thursday, he's going to Florida to talk about Medicare at a senior center. Live the villages, which is where a lot of seniors live in in Florida. Candid, presidential candidates always go there, so he's going down there to talk about Medicare. And as he's leaving, he says to reporters just thirty minutes ago, "You know, I really think that the Ukraine and China should um, investigate the Bidens." So it's like he is increasingly saying what he has said privately, publicly now. So, so now we we turn from the chaos of that to Ben. I mean, you know as well as anyone, the House of Representatives is by its nature a chaotic institution. Nancy Pelosi's like whole like purpose in life is basically to, to impose some order on that. Um, so how how's it going at this point? Fa- facing what what Nancy just described as as she and House Democrats get ready to move forward with uh, with what what's coming next on on impeachment? Yeah, you know I think Pelosi has been very methodical in recent days. The the Congress went uh, went out of town for a two week recess, but she didn't let the the vacuum um, linger. You know, she's made sure to have news and events and messaging. You know, yesterday she had a press conference with Chairman Adam Schiff, the intelligence chief, who's really spearheading this impeachment inquiry into Trump's uh, pressuring Ukrainian the Ukrainian president. They're having conference calls with the caucus. Uh, this week, the intelligence committee is meeting behind closed doors to hold depositions with some of these key witnesses in the Ukraine scandal. She's very eager to to keep moving forward on this, you know, not let things let up, keeping members apprised of where things stand. You know, there was some uh, grumbling among House Democrats behind closed doors last week. We don't know where things are going with this inquiry. What are our next steps? What's our messaging? And I think Pelosi uh, got the got the, the message and said, you know, we're going to we're going to keep moving forward. We're going to keep you in the loop. Their strategy is is pretty is pretty clear, you know keep repeating what they've seen and what's the evidence has been borne out, which is, you know, the president acknowledging that he tried to pressure a foreign government to investigate, you know, a political adversary and not let that uh, drop off the map. Yeah. And I obviously like Trump is, is well, there's the, this like pattern to the Trump scandal of, of denial followed by like acceptance and then like claiming actually there was nothing wrong with that that we should probably jump into in a second. But Ben, you, you mentioned really quickly Pelosi getting pressure from her members about what's next. We don't know what's happening. So what is happening next? What are kind of the, the, the mileposts coming up the road? Well, you know, I just to pull it back a little bit, Pelosi was resisting impeachment for a long time, you know, for months. Some in her caucus, the progressives, were saying we need to move now. This, the Mueller investigation gives us plenty to work with. And she didn't, she didn't go there. It was only until the Ukraine news broke and that the moderates in her caucus, the vulnerable freshmen, said, yes, we want to go there too, you know, that she was willing to go. She, she's very good at keeping the pulse of the caucus. Um, so she wants to keep things moving and she wants to stay where her members are. In terms of what's next, this Friday uh, – Schiff is going to be bringing in the uh, the inspector general of the intelligence committee uh, of the intelligence community um, to speak with his his panel. That's a big moment that we're waiting for. 
This week has also seen some depositions from some of the key witnesses. This guy, Kurt Volker, who was Trump's special envoy to Ukraine um, and then got mixed up in all this. Rudy Giuliani went on TV, showed a text message of him and Volker talking and saying, look. Kurt saying, great, I will tell Yermak and he'll visit with you there. Thanks. Mr. Mayor, how was your meeting with Andre? You know, the State Department knew what I was doing. This is after Volcker was named in the in the whistleblower correct, report. Correct, correct. Right? After the whistleblower mentioned Volcker. Now, they were all over me, you know, asking me to do it. I was happy to do it. I helped my country uh, get this relationship in, uh, in, in good shape. Volcker shortly after resigned. Um, and then Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, you know, a close Trump ally, uh, tried to send tried to send a message to Democrats. We're not going to cooperate. He sent a letter um, calling to the Democrats bullies, saying there's not enough time for our people to meet with you. But Volker said, "Well, I'm coming anyway." Mm. So the the pressure is going to rise on the administration, and the clash between the executive branch and Congress is definitely uh, moving forward. And I think what's different um, from this impeachment inquiry from other investigations is that it doesn't just uh, rely on the White House. It's going to be very hard for the White House to claim executive privilege over a lot of things that happened out of the agencies. And what I'm seeing is the investigation is not just about you know what people in the White House did and what Trump said on the call. It also gets into uh, State Department officials who knew about the call and OMB officials who held up Ukraine, uh, aid to Ukraine, and it's going to get into the intelligence community. And when I've talked to people, it, that makes a big difference because it means that there's paper trails potentially and emails and witnesses that will be outside of the tentacles of the White House, and it's going to be much harder for the White House to stomp on it. And part of the white, the reason the White House has been able to control and stonewall these Democratic investigations is because they've claimed executive privilege over, you know, White House aides or cabinet officials. But these other people at the agencies, these mid-level officials, it's going to be a lot harder for the White House to make that argument. And I don't think that that has totally sunk in at the White House because I think that Trump is just leaning on this idea that he can go out there and message this and, you know, batter the Democrats and call into question the credibility of the whistleblower and that that will do the job. Whereas I think the Democrats are thinking about this sort of in a different strategic way, that they'll be able to get the information from other channels. That's a really interesting point, because one of the things that Trump and, and his allies have been talking about is that we've seen this before, like, the, oh, this is another phony investigation. This is, But but you're saying even apart from the allegations, just the mechanics of what's involved here is going to make the process different and potentially more dangerous. Yeah. And the other thing is you have the whistleblower complaint, which right. was largely borne out, like the transcript that the White House released bore out what the whistleblower said. I mean, nobody, it's funny when you talk to people in the White House, nobody in the White House is saying Trump didn't say those things. He said it today in front of a bunch of reporters. Uh, they should investigate the Bidens. That the Ukraine should company. investigate the Bidens. Look, and by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Bidens. Um, and so, you know, they're not saying that they can't claim that like he didn't say these things. All they can do is kind of try to control it as much as they can. And and also, I think one of the strategies that Trump has, if he does have one, is to create a lot of confusion in the mind of voters. And I think that's a risk for the Democrats. Like if you go down all these rabbit holes, voters will lose interest. They'll lose the thread of 
a pretty simple story, right? The Trump asked a foreign leader to interfere in our election. That put the national security of the U.S. at risk. And then, you know, the Democrats could argue there was a cover up. They could lose that. Democrats could lose that thread if they like end up, you know, interviewing a bazillion people from different agencies. And Trump is able to create the sense of confusion, which I think he's trying to do. Ben, there's some there's some conflict among House Democrats about exactly what should be at at focus here, right? About whether to to try and pursue something narrow related to this most recent revelation about Ukraine, or to bring in uh, a lot of the stuff. As you said, there are uh, uh, many, many, many House Democrats who have been pushing for an impeachment inquiry for some time now into all manner of other things, stuff that was in the Mueller report, et cetera, et cetera. Emoluments, yeah, right. There's there's plenty that House Democrats have been investigating. Uh, it sounds like Pelosi is going to keep the party pretty focused on Ukraine. Um, the one other thing I could see uh, being added to the impeachment articles is obstruction of Congress, um, which is something that the, the chairman are already kind of signaling. You know, they sent a related bunch to what Nancy said about all this. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they they sent uh, subpoena requests to Mike Pompeo and State Department, uh, and they said in this letter, you know, if you don't comply with this, you are potentially uh, obstructing our investigation. And this could be part of our impeachment inquiry. And I think I think it's almost certain that obstruction in some manner will be an article of impeachment if it does get to the floor as expected. Because, you know, as Nancy pointed out, the Trump administration is going to stonewall and going to try to block whatever they can. And the swiftness of it just really quickly has surprised the White House. Like that, I think that's part of the reason they've been caught off guard because they've been able to stonewall the Democrats so successfully. So I think they're surprised that the Democrats, A, came to this conclusion so quickly after the whistle, they learned about the whistleblower complaint, and that B, they're just moving so fast. Ben, one last question. Like from your position, basically sitting, you know, you, you've got this like, enormous funnel, right? That you're like your your Congress reporters are are pouring all manner of stuff that they're hearing into, and you're sitting there at the bottom collecting it all. We, we've been talking a lot about Trump on one side, House Democrats on the other. Has there been any movement among any House Republicans? And I've seen some reports over the last few weeks about a few, not so much saying that they endorse impeachment, but that they endorse an inquiry to get to the bottom of these questions, basically an impeachment inquiry. There have been a few members here and there, it seems like, where there's been little cracks about people just stepping maybe not all the way away from the Trump administration, but a little bit outside from it. Yeah, I think following where the Republicans on Capitol Hill land is going to be one of the biggest uh, questions for us, you know. A few Republicans have said we need to follow the facts. I'm not interested in impeachment inquiry per se, but an inquiry of of some form, um, which you've seen from some of the moderate Republicans. Um, Are there any big names we should be keeping an eye out for there? Well, um, Fred Upton, who's Mm -hmm. a a veteran Republican congressman from Michigan, you know, he made some comments yesterday or earlier this week um, saying that he wanted to see where things went. Uh, There was a congressman um, out in Nevada who made similar comments had to walk back his initial statement because it seemed like he was endorsing impeachment. Got a lot of blowback from the right. Yeah, yeah. And we saw, you know, in the Senate, Chuck Grassley um, is a longtime champion of whistleblower protections. And he issued a statement this week that kind of turned heads where he was like, you know, the whistleblower needs to be protected. Um, You know, he, he rebutted Trump's argument that hearing something secondhand was not necessarily legitimate. Um, You know, at the same time, he Grassley is still not in favor of impeachment. Um, But, you know, I think Republicans, I think a lot of Republicans, especially privately, are not excited about this to see where this goes. Um, And at at the moment, you know, there's no sense that there are 20 Republicans in the Senate who would vote to convict and remove the president. 
but we have to see where things land, you know? Mm-hmm. They're not like ref- reflexively or as reflexively, at least just lining up and saying, like, put this to bed. There are certainly a lot of Republicans who are, but there are, I think, a number of Republicans who are are a bit more standoffish. Got it. Yeah, I'm very curious to see where, where that part goes. And that could, who, who knows, that could play a big role in changing the political calculus around all this going forward, too, or not. A lot more to come on this story. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Nancy, thank you as well. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, so we're going to get back on the presidential campaign trail for this segment. We're going to talk a lot about what's going on in Iowa, the first caucus state. Thank you, Iowa! It is great to be with y'all in Des Moines at the Iowa State Fair. I am Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, where we can see Iowa from our porch. Hello, Tomlin. I'm at the Iowa State Fair! Woo! (laughs) We have a pair of Politico national political reporters. We have Elena Schneider in the studio. Hey, Elena. Hey, Scott. On the line, we have Natasha Karecki. Hey, Natasha. Hey, Scott. And also in the studio, senior politics editor Charlie Matessian, Esquire. Charlie, thank you for being here. Hi, Scott. All right. So, Elena and Natasha, I'd, I'd love if, if you guys can kick us off. Natasha, tell us about uh, – you You were both at the uh, the Polk County Democratic Party's steak fry uh, in Iowa a few weeks ago. This is, you know, kind of the, the iconic, you know, year before the presidential caucuses event uh, that's been going on for forever, essentially, uh, in, in political terms. What – uh, t- tell us a little bit about the scene and and what what goes on there and what the campaigns were trying to accomplish. Um, sure, this is like um, it's it's another one of these big rallying events. With the energy and let's face it, the resources from this steak fry and our other events, we have become a machine. It's where each of the campaigns um, are trying to show their strength and their organization and uh, you know as representative of of what they have going on on the ground in Iowa. And they they broke a record. So it was twelve more than twelve thousand Democrats came out. Twelve thousand two hundred forty-two. It was like just m- masses and masses of people. Um, and imagine them like just all sitting around this this giant stage. I mean, most of them congregated there, and then each of the candidates would go up on the stage and do their pitch. Thank you. Well, you know, it, you can kind of get a sense of the enthusiasm for each. For each person, just from you know, the crowd's reaction, you know, the thunder in in the bleachers and so forth. Um, but but the other big big part of this is these um, parades that each of the candidates does. They um, they do these marches. Um, so they have like a real rally. Imagine this like gigantic field, like you're taking your kids to some huge soccer tournament and you're completely lost and you can't find the teams like that's what it's like and you have to walk across these huge fields to get to each um different candidate and um and so they have a rally and then they all march into the central the central venue um and and it was just funny like there was all kinds of you know behind the scenes jostling going on like um biden wanted to make sure he had more tickets sold than anyone else so he had 1800 tickets and and made sure that he was walking in with these supporters in this march and it's just like this big display of force and he had a fire truck and ice cream trucks and acrobats and um you know all that type of thing and uh you know it, it, that was kind of similar for a, a lot of the candidates but uh, the other 
I guess, outlier was uh, Elizabeth Warren, who didn't do the march. Yeah, I wandered over to her area that day, and it was striking to sort of see her her area and Bernie Sanders. So imagine, as you, as Natasha perfectly put it, sort of this giant, enormous field, this big park in Des Moines. And everyone sort of has these little rally like rally sites where you're sort of supposed to gather. Some are much bigger than others. And so Warren's was um, sort of tucked away a little bit further back. And it was essentially, I mean, it was basically empty. There were a couple of staffers and volunteers who were wandering around. And I walked up and I just sort of said, hey, what's going on? And we sort of knew that they weren't, you know, putting on, as they say, sort of what they like to say, visuals. This idea of a show of force, everyone wearing your T-shirts, marching in exactly as as Natasha was describing. Um, Pete Buttigieg had, um, and Amy Klobuchar both had drum lines. I know that uh, Kamala Harris also walked in with a marching band. But but Warren's camp really said that they were explicitly not going for the quote-unquote visuals, that their whole thing was about organizing. And so what was striking during some of these speeches was seeing these little mint-colored balloons that would be tied to a person. And you could see them walking through the crowd. And these were all organizers who were out there trying to caucus and get, you know, trying to get people to sign caucus cards for Elizabeth Warren. So the idea wasn't so much that they were going to uh, put on this big show um, sort of for, for the TV cameras, but actually try and use this as an organizing event. And granted, that's sort of a way to, you know, again, it's like a something, it's a way to try it's and get people. a different way to get attention. Exactly. Right? It's, it's, it's still nonetheless a plot. It's still a way to try and get reporters and people to talk about you. Um, But it was creative. It was something different. And it was noticeable to see these little balloons sort of wandering through the crowd um, because you knew where they were at all times. So in that sense, they did still had sort of a visual presence. It was just maybe a little more understated. (laughs) And now, Charlie, all this activity at this this big cattle call and everything that the candidates were doing there is happening against this backdrop of it seems like there's been news out of a bunch of different campaigns over uh, the last few weeks just underlining the importance of Iowa to all this that um, yes like a lot of, a lot of campaigns have spent time uh, and effort really organizing South Carolina and and Nevada and so super Tuesday states and there's a lot of delegates at stake in those but it seems like there's this growing realization that especially in the current media environment with the the Democratic Party so fired up to take on Trump that whoever comes out strong of Iowa it's going to be like a bomb going or it could be like a bomb going off in the campaign and could really rocket someone out of there that could just change all these preparations that have been made in the states that come after. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I think it's beginning to dawn on, on a number of the campaigns, the path, the exact path to the nomination, uh, because it wasn't entirely clear before how you run in a campaign when there's about, I don't know, t- more than, you know, close to two dozen candidates all in Iowa at various points and people weren't sure really how to play. How do you play the, the map in uh, a situation like that? But now things are becoming much more clear. Uh, we're starting to see in polling in Iowa, at least, uh, you, you see Bernie Sanders, you see Joe Biden kind of falling off a cliff. I mean, not dr- maybe that's overstating a little, but but they're on a straight downward trajectory. I mean, Bernie Sanders was in the high 20s in the Des Moines Register poll in March, and now he's at 11 percent. You know, Biden's drop uh, was not as precipitous, but it was, you know, it was pretty big. So we're seeing Iowa starting to break up a little bit. You're seeing candidates start to fall out. And I think you're seeing some other candidates realize that the only viable path forward is through um, Iowa. And one of them is Kamala Harris, who finally came out and said that she was going to all but live in Iowa. And because she recognizes, you know, they're looking down down the, uh, the, the barrel of a primary uh, system where 
she needs to win South Carolina. That has always been sort of the idea for her. That's the springboard for her. She wins South Carolina, then goes into Super Tuesday and does really well and emerges as the nominee. Well, here's the problem. Like she needs to run the the Barack Obama path, which is uh, you win South Carolina, but before you win South Carolina, you have to prove to South Carolina and particularly African-Americans in South Carolina that you're viable, that you can win a big state and that's Iowa because Kamala Harris is really struggling in New Hampshire. So all of a sudden, I think it becomes very clear to the campaign, Iowa is everything for her. To your point of sort of Iowa gaining the sort of regaining its sort of importance in, in the calendar, you know, I remember there was a lot of stories that we wrote and other outlets wrote about how everyone was sort of traveling everywhere, that Iowa wasn't sort of the destination place. No one was sort of setting up camp there. I mean, Elizabeth Warren was sort of the steady, you know, steady build up there. But but there was a lot of conversation of like, are we so nationalized at this point? Is this, a, you know, this is such a nationalized race that it's just as valuable to be on MSNBC's, you know, Rachel Maddow as it is to, um, you know, get an endorsement from some major person in Iowa. And I think that that's still, still true. And I asked Buttigieg, a little bit about this in, in sort of the context of it feels like this, you know, that the state is again sort of reemerging as sort of a focal point for, for 2020. Why is that? And I think his answer sort of speaks to this, which is this idea of you sort of had to, you couldn't go to Iowa first. You had to build nationally. You had to build up in the same way that he did. And granted, you know, everyone's right when they when it when they actually succeed. Um, and so I think that he he made the argument that basically he was able to build from the outside in, but that never took away from the importance of Iowa and that ultimately everyone was still going to land there. It just maybe was going to happen much later in the calendar than it has traditionally. And I think that we're seeing that, that everyone has really come to terms with the fact that you can't walk out of Iowa. There aren't going to be that many tickets, even though you ask somebody like Amy Klobuchar and she says, oh, there's like seven or eight tickets out of Iowa. That's not pretty. Yeah, that's right. not, that's not, <laughs> that's not exactly that. believable. <laughs> exactly. So I think that everyone knows that this is really important. Um, but maybe it just happened later than we've ever seen it before. No, that actually makes some amount of sense. Charlie, what do you think about this? I mean, it's the idea that you have to organize everywhere in order to take advantage take advantage of a potential boost that you might get out of Iowa. But you still ultimately that's that's you know, necessary but not sufficient. You still need that traditional big finish coming out of that first state to kind of prove yourself to take advantage of all that organizing everywhere else. Yeah, I, I think Elena's point is really smart, the idea that it's nationalized, but it's still as regionalized as ever, Like, meaning you have to get your base on through cable, through MSNBC, through CNN, through ripping the Trump administration in high-profile hearings, but then you need to pick a state and you need to pick your path and be smart about it uh, and use either Iowa as the springboard or New Hampshire as the springboard, uh, one or the other, both preferably, but but you ha- it has to be one or the other because you have to prove your viability um, through South Carolina and and more importantly through through uh, Super Tuesday in the beginning of March. But it's interesting though that nobody really has tried to own New Hampshire yet. I mean. D- Right. I mean, like it doesn't really feel like point. anyone has actually set up shop there and claimed that as their space. I mean, arguably, maybe Warren and Sanders in part because of their proximity to it and their success there in the past. I mean, or at least Sanders success there in the past. But like nobody's really set up shop there. I totally agree with you. And you can tell me whether this is a BS theory or not. But my theory on this is that it's because it's an open primary there mm. and there are so few centrists running on the Democratic side that you're not going to try uh, to – 
base your campaign out of New Hampshire where you might re- be rewarded. What people don't understand about Iowa is because I think, especially on the East Coast, you know, w- with all the stereotypes about the Midwest and things like that, people often think Iowa is a conservative state. It's a, you know, an agricultural state. They don't realize the state Democratic Party there is very progressive and has always been very, very progressive. So that's a very liberal state and that's well suited to many of the candidates in the field. Whereas New Hampshire, it's a little more complicated. It's a little trickier because of the mechanics of that primary. And then also, it, it, you, when, once you get to, to South Carolina, I mean, a big part of Biden's strength with African-American voters is potentially that African-American voters tend to be a little bit more moderate than, uh, than white Democrats. Right, Natasha? No, right. That's, that's exactly right. Um, he's, you know, but, but again, you, you, you go back to the path that I think Charlie brought up earlier. Um, you have to do well in Iowa. If, if Elizabeth Warren just crushes it, um, and she's already slowly building with African American electorate right now, then what does that do? Does that, does that, that end up eroding what he thinks is his firewall? Um, lots of things can change. And I think that's why, you know, you're seeing Biden, you know, playing hard in Iowa, but also making sure he's uh, managing expectations there and and making sure that he has other viable paths um, with South Carolina and beyond. Right, right, right. Charlie, and, and last I word. I don't think you can overstate the importance of the Iowa-South Carolina nexus, meaning Iowa is essential to Biden, to Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, the two African-American candidates. And it's essential to Warren to perform well there because what we've seen, and this is the, the the Barack Obama experience in 2008, what we've seen is if you want to convince the pivotal, the essential constituency in the Democratic Party, the party that you can't win the nomination without having a foothold in, that is African-Americans, you have to prove it in Iowa to them that you're viable. That's what Obama did and that's how he came roaring back from behind against uh, Hillary Clinton by doing that, convincing South Carolina African-Americans by winning Iowa. And I think the same dynamic applies in this primary too, particularly to the four candidates I was talking about. Okay. So may- maybe the idea that, you know, the, the person who finishes seventh or eighth in Iowa gets this big boost of momentum is is a little ludicrous. But really, how many how many people are there? Like how many tickets are there for someone to to show well and then and then go on from there and maybe have a chance of winning New Hampshire or Nevada or, or anything that comes next? I say that there's no more than three or four tickets out of Iowa, maybe just three. Uh, I think that there's a, an eagerness, if not a demand, from the from Democratic primary voters that they want this to get down to a nominee. Um, whether or not that actually happens, whether or not there's somebody like Bernie Sanders who sticks it through till the end to burn the whole place down or some other candidate who chooses to do that, I mean – it may not matter what we think, but I think that, like, in terms of viability in the minds of voters and donors, it can't be more than three or four tickets. Natasha, does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, I, I and I think we've written about that. I, I don't see a lot of room beyond that. Um, and, you know, keep in mind the 15 percent viability threshold. So you have to have for delegates. right? Yeah, you have to have a certain minimum. So, I mean, you know, it, it's math. Um, but. But yeah, I mean, I think I think when we see this, you know, every cycle, that's you know, that's where a lot of people end up dropping out. It's after Iowa. Got it. Well, clearly, uh, very important, potentially the most important state. And I think we should get this group back together a couple more times before we get to early February and talk about it. Natasha, thanks so much for hopping on the phone. Thanks, Scott. And Charlie, Elena, thanks for being here in the studio. Thank you. Thanks for being you, Scott. <laughs> And as always, a big thank you to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer for this episode is Annie Reese. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. 
Remember, if you like the Nerdcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.